Um, this is my first Sunday teaching in the new building, and I must say this, this space feels a lot more like home than the Straub Gym. And I think it's fitting, uh, given this morning's text, for us to reflect on God's goodness in providing this space for us to meet in. Um, so I wanted to start this morning's prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, you guys are already in Deuteronomy, so hold that spot there and I'll pray. God, you are worthy of all of our praise. We thank you for giving us life in your Son. We thank you for sending your Spirit to unite us together and to instruct us in truth and righteousness. You are a good God, and we are grateful to be part of your kingdom and to call you our King. Thank you for your word, which shows us your character and your love for your people. May this time together be fruitful, and may we have a right response to your goodness. In Jesus' name. So we're coming here to the close of a massive section of law in Deuteronomy, and I'm so thankful that Hans didn't uh, call for a sub until we made it past all of those miscellaneous laws. Uh, being a high school teacher, I'm glad I wasn't forced to show the same restraint that Hans showed in handling those delicate texts. Um, I think there would have been a lot of uh, jokes made that shouldn't have been made. Nevertheless, we see here at the end of chapter five, where we, uh, 25 where we left off some interesting context for how this section of law is going to be wrapped up. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time on um, chapter 25 because I want to spend the bulk of our time. Hans gave me this like massive section of text to teach through. I want to spend the bulk of the time in chapter 26, but I do want to touch on 25 because I think it shows us some interesting context. So let's jump in, actually, just back up uh, in the column, probably in your Bible, to chapter 25, verse 13, which is where we left off. And it says this, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. We've seen this over and over again in Deuteronomy, but in this passage, we see God's heart for protecting the vulnerable. You see that word that's uh, translated fair in English is actually the Hebrew word tzedek. And if you were with us when we were going through Isaiah, we saw it translated over and over as a term that meant righteousness and justice. So God desires his people to be a people who promote righteousness and justice and how they conduct their business with full and fair weights and measures. He wanted his people to show each other, along with the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, God's justice in their daily interactions. And so from there, Moses jumps into an interesting history lesson. Let's jump to verse 17 here. It says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way, when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord is giving you <clears throat> for an inheritance to possess, you shall brought out the memory of Amalek from under, the he from under heaven. You shall not forget. So now we're going to play a wonderful game called Who Was Amalek and What Did He Do? Now, if you're me, the character Amalek doesn't make my top 50 or even my top 100 most memorable Bible characters. 
So I had to be reminded while studying for this teaching who he was. And it turns out Amalek was actually the grandson of Jacob's twin brother Esau. Jacob being renamed later Israel. So let's turn to Exodus 17. And we'll get a little uh, more context. Now the people of Israel would have known this story. They would have caught the reference. Exodus 17. It starts in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So basically, Amalek was like the junior mafia of the ancient Near East. They heard that there was a proverbial gravy train rolling out of Egypt and that it would be easy picking. And so they saddled up their camels. They were apparently camel masters, which in those days would be like uh, the crew of Fast and the Furious running down a caravan of moms pushing strollers. And so we read in Deuteronomy that they attacked the back of the caravan of Israelites. They picked on the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. And we see here in Exodus again, God's heart for the vulnerable and for his people. God's win in that battle was to show that he was on the side of justice on the side of righteousness. And so, when we see this included at the end of this section of laws talking about justice and righteousness, we're seeing just kind of that antithesis, that opposite argument being made. It's included here as the opposite. Because what God was hoping is that Israel would follow God's law. And that they would look like the opposite of their thieving, heathen cousins, the Amalekites. And that's why God has a command for Israel to brought out even the memory of Amalek. Israel was to be the opposite of how Amalek treated them. A nation concerned with loving God and loving their neighbors. So that's the quick summary that I'm going to give for 25. And I think it's a great piece of context for jumping into chapter 26. This story of the Amalekites and the reminder to be just in our dealings with each other is juxtaposed with God's call to his people in chapter 26. You see, God is calling his people to promote righteousness and justice in how they interact with each other and their neighbors. So in this section in 26, we're going to see once again how God's heart for Israel's people can be seen and how we can apply the heart behind these commands to our context here in Salem, Oregon, 2019. So let's jump in. We heard this section read, and it was a long section, but I want to turn back and refresh. 
on 26, 1 through 5. When you come into the land, the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it. You shall take some of the fruits of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand, set it down before the altar of the Lord, and you shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a great nation, a nation great, mighty, and populous. So here's what's happening. The Israelites are gathered on the edge of the promised land, still in the desert, when Moses is giving the speech to them. And the Lord reaffirms his commitment to them. He says, when you come into the promised land and you possess it. Meaning, you've already taken the land and you've battled any of the other claims to the land and you've defeated all of your enemies. It's not an if statement. It's not if you come into the land, you should do this. It's when you come into the land. He's giving the Israelites... Again, that affirmation, that hope that he will do something on their behalf. And I love what it says in verse 5. You shall make a response. So you may have read the heading in chapter 26 that says, First Fruits and Tithe. And you may have, much like myself when I started studying this passage to teach it today, you might have assumed that this teaching would primarily be about money. And so while it is about being generous with our resources, I really want to focus on that word in verse 5, response. That's why I've titled today's teaching, if I can find it, there it is, a right response to God's goodness. A right response to God's goodness. You see, this whole section would come into play as a response to God's gracious provision for his people. He would have already given the Israelites the promised land and victory over their enemies. And in return, the expectation is that they would respond. So I want you guys to key in to a few different um, ideas here, the arguments that I'm going to make. And I'm going to give them to you up front here so you're not worried about catching them later in the, in the teaching. So you can go ahead and write these down. A right response to God's goodness shows that our hope is in Jesus. That's the first point that I'm going to make. A right response to God's goodness promotes unity within the body. And the last point that I'm going to make this morning is a right response to God's goodness promotes righteousness and justice in our community. Give you guys a second to write those down. And I'll come back to them later. So let's take a closer look at the first point. Our response to God's goodness, a right response to God's goodness, should show that our hope is in Jesus. Let's keep going on in Deuteronomy. You shall make a response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Because we're so far removed from this ancient Near East context, and really removed from being an agrarian society, the idea of first fruits is sometimes confusing. So what would happen basically is that the Jewish landowner, farmer, would take a basket full of the first things that were ripe in his field. Didn't matter what kind of farmer he was, if it was figs or olives, grain. He would take the first of whatever was ripe and load up a basket and take it to the tabernacle. In that time, it would be a huge show of faith and hope of what was to come. Because at the time of the first fruits, when the first things were ripe, there was no guarantee that the rest of the harvest would be good. There could be a sudden drought, or a heat wave, or a hailstorm. There could be bugs that came in, an enemy army, any number of calamities that could come and wipe out your crop. So it would be purely out of a response to God's proven graciousness and obedience to God's word that the farmer would be compelled to bring in the basket of produce. And there's something really beautiful in this confession that the farmer would, would make as he brings the first fruits. The bringer recounts God's goodness and the direct intervention in the history of the Jewish people. He says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It wasn't just coincidence, all those things that happened from the plagues in Egypt to getting water from Iraq to defeating the Amalekites. It wasn't a coincidence. It was God's divine intervention and provision in their lives. And so notice what he says there in verse 10. It says, and behold. And so when you see that in this text, it's really an exclamation. It's really a celebration of he's recounting God's goodness and he's saying, and see, because you're so good, because of all that, because of the goodness of Yahweh, I'm bringing you back the first fruit of what you have given me because this land is yours anyway. And so we see this offering as the Israelites making a confession of their hope in Yahweh for the rest of the harvest to come through. They're trusting in the Lord that this first fruit is going to be representative of the rest of the harvest. And they're trusting Him and only in Him for provision and for his favor for another year to come. And so as Christ followers in 2019, the concept in God's heart here becomes obvious when we remember that all of Scripture points us to the redemptive work of Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 15.1 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I'm going to jump to 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those, who have, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see, Paul even uses the same language that God spoke through Moses back in Deuteronomy. He goes right into the gospel message, highlighting the fact that Christ did rise from the dead, that he is our deposit, that he is our hope for future glory. And so our hope is not in God causing our crops to grow or taking that seed money we sent to that televangelist to make us rich. No, not at all. It's not that at all. Our hope is not a prosperity gospel. It's not a hope for provision in a sense of excess. It's a hope of first fruits that is set squarely on Christ and his death and resurrection. Not a hope to live the blessed life, but a hope to belong to Christ and to his people and to share his resurrection. I am my beloved's and he is mine, the writer of Song of Songs says. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says. It says this, Therefore, brothers, Hebrews chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can hear the language there of the first fruits. It says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. It echoes the confession that that person, the bringer of the tithe, makes in Deuteronomy. His hope is in the provision of the Lord. And I love what he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The author says, in other words, we rejoice in God's goodness with our community, with the Levite and the sojourner, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. We rejoice together in God's goodness. And so a response to God's goodness, a right response to God's goodness, 
should show that our hope is in Jesus. And so, setting our hope on Jesus is a great idea, right? It's a great idea. Everyone would say that. Yeah, it's a good idea. But what does that look like in a practical way? Because I can make that ascent mentally really easy. I can say, yeah, my hope's in Jesus. Of course, I'm a Christian. He died for me. But in a practical way, showing that our hope is in Jesus means we use our time, our talents, our treasures, and our relationships in a way that gives Jesus the priority. It's a reorientation of how we do life. We bring the first fruits of all of those areas and we hold them in an open hand, in a basket, as it were, in a tribute before our king. And we offer them up freely. And I want to give you guys a couple of examples from my life, even this week, to illustrate what I'm talking about. Many of you know I'm a teacher. And teacher's salary is not awesome. It's not terrible. Right? And so there are little things that I do at school to earn a little bit of extra money. And so I've been waiting for the stipend that I had earned to come through. It's a stipend that I worked for all the school year, and I still haven't gotten paid for it. So I've been, you know, a little miffed. A little miffed. And I've been waiting for it because Sarah and I were hoping to make a contribution to our missions fund here at church. And I had been waiting for the rest of my harvest to come in before I was going to respond to God's goodness in my life. But praise God for being able to study this word this week. Because whenever we study the word, it brings conviction. And it certainly brought conviction in my own life. And the Lord moved me to obedience in this area, not because I felt obligated to, but because I was impacted by remembering God's goodness in my life. And I'm going to finish the rest of the story because there's more to the story later. But then another example I wanted to put before you is this idea of giving the Lord the first fruits of our relationships. What would it look like, I wonder, if we gave God not necessarily the chronological first part of a relationship, that's probably kind of awkward. Hey, I just met you. Uh, this is crazy. First fruits, right? No, that's, that's awkward. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the most important part of each relationship. What if as a church family, we decided that we were only going to engage one another with the focus of each relationship being God's glory in our midst? A focus of God's glory in the midst of our relationships. Instead of, we see this contrasting idea like we saw from 25, instead of how the world does relationships, which is looking for opportunities to use other people to gain power, to gain worth, to gain status and control. What if we did things differently? We have to hold our relationships loosely so that God can be glorified in our midst. Now, some of you know, a degree of dysfunction exists in my family and in some of my family relationships. I'm sure none of you can relate. And what I've found 
to be honoring to God the most in the context of those relationships is when I hold them with an open hand. And when my focus is what I can do to bring justice and righteousness in the midst of those relationships. And not focusing on what I'm getting or what I'm benefiting from the relationship. And often, this has cost, cost me something. It's been costly. It's caused separation at times from people that I love and care deeply about. But ultimately, is the yielded fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. So I wonder if we as a church family committed to doing this and giving over the most important part of our time, our talents, our treasures, and our relationships, not just within church, but also to the places that we work, uh, with our neighbors and in the interactions we have in our community, when we're out shopping at the grocery store, what a beautiful picture of God's goodness we would paint for the world to see. You see, I felt conviction again this week. As my sister-in-law, my two-year-old nephew and infant niece, spent the past eight nights with us. And I do mean spent the night with us. My, my niece was literally crashed in my closet for the past week. And I can tell you, unequivocally, I'm not ready to go back to that infant life. See, my brother-in-law was out of town, and so my sister-in-law asked if she could stay with us all week. Those of you who know me well know that I'm a bit, a bit of what my wife would call a homebody, a bit of a introvert, someone who likes his space. And so inviting other people to be in that space for that amount of time was something that I was reluctant to commit to. But I was convicted. As happens when your wife speaks to you, right? I was convicted about holding my time, my talents, my treasures, and my relationships loosely and being willing to give up something in response to God's goodness to show His love to others. And so as a result of the Spirit moving through my wife and children, speaking to me about the need to be gracious and showing hospitality, we had a wonderful week spoiling my nephew and exhorting my sister-in-law on the important job she's doing raising disciples in her home. You see, I'm learning and becoming more sure, more sure every day, that my hope isn't in getting to have my space. It's not in getting to have my time. It's not in buying that thing that I really want or getting to travel to that place that I've been saving up for. I'm learning and becoming more sure that my only hope is Christ crucified and seeing his name glorified. And this is an aside here that I wanted to throw in because I think it's really important. Mom's in the room, and I'm not just talking about moms who've actually birthed children, but all of you women who spend time taking care of our children. You have such a difficult and exhausting job. 
Well, God may have gifted men physical strengths, good looks, scruffy beards. We all know that God gave women actual superpowers. There is something truly supernatural in a mom's energy and patience. And there's just no way I can equivalent what I do for a job, the amount of energy I spend, with the amount of energy you all spend caring for our children, cooking and cleaning for us, keeping our homes in order. It's miraculous. And you deserve way more credit than we give. And so I wanted to encourage you all. You're doing a great job. We see you. We know it's difficult and draining at times. But as an elder of this church, I appreciate you all so much. And so a right response to God's goodness shows that our hope is in Christ. Second point is this. I'll give you a second to write this down if you didn't catch it before. A right response to God's goodness promotes unity in the body. A right response to God's goodness keeps unity in the body. We see in Deuteronomy 26:11, we read that there at the end of that last section that I went through, that after offering the first fruits there was unity. The offerer, the levite and the sojourner were to rejoice together. We saw in the Corinthians passage that we looked at earlier also that Jesus is the first fruits of a new creation. He's the first of many who will be perfectly reconciled to Yahweh. Jesus's response to God's faithfulness was to pour out his life for mankind. Jesus also invited us to participate in his response to God by sharing his body and his blood. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians 11. This is a long section of text, but I'm going to put it up here on the screen for us. It says, "But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse." For in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you. That's not a great start, Corinthians. And I believe that in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. In other words, you're fooling yourself. For in eating each one goes on ahead with his own meal. One grows hungry and another gets drunk. And I have the same responses Paul, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? It's like when you come to your kids, like, what? What am I going to say? Shall I commend you in this? No. Absolutely, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Share with one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. So there's a lot going on here in this text, right? They think they're eating the Lord's Supper. They're really just eating. Some of them are overeating. Some of them don't have anything to eat. People are getting sauced at church. It's not a good look. But I desperately want us to see the connections here between the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate this every Sunday with the bread and the little cup of juice, and the first fruits offering. You see, in the Corinthian church at that time, there was disunity. There's a, disagree- a disagreement about a number of things, but in this particular passage, it's dealing with the church's response to God's goodness. The people were getting together for a church potluck, which is how they celebrated the Lord's Supper in those days. And yet there was no sharing of the food. I mean, how can you have a potluck without sharing food? And that's what Paul says. Why don't you just eat at home? If you're not going to share with each other, this is a waste of time. And some people were getting drunk. Other people went hungry. How can you say that you love God and see people in your own church hungry? And so Paul reminds them of Christ's commands. When they're sharing the Lord's Supper, they should be doing it in remembrance of Christ. In other words, they should remember how Christ willingly laid down his life, how Jesus led a life that was full of reconciliation and care for the vulnerable. And then Paul says, if you eat of the body or drink of the cup in a way that is unworthy, you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. And so we often hear this part about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner Again, taught about as a mental exercise, about making sure that you're thankful that God did this for you. And I don't want to minimize that. It certainly is that. We must be thankful. We must be grateful that the Lord did that on our behalf. But that's not really what Paul is talking about in this context. He's saying you have to be reconciled to one another. There can't be this ongoing division in the church. And what he's also saying is, you have to take care of one another. There has to be generosity. You have to be sharing the things that you you have. So how do we know that that's actually what he's saying? Look again at at verse 29 there. And it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's confusing, Because it's the same word body, but he's not talking about Christ's body in this context. He's talking about the body, the church body, the family. So if you eat and drink without discerning the needs of the family, without discerning where you stand in context of relationship with your brothers and your sisters, that's when you're going to drink judgment on yourself. And so he finishes off the passage by saying, when you take the Lord's Supper, share with one another. It's translated as, Wait for one another, 
if you look at your little footnote there, and I think this is a better translation. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, share with one another. Right? Be generous. Share your maple bars with one another. Okay? Make sure that Tyler gets at least half a maple bar. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are very generous with maple bars. But I wonder, dear church, when we take communion and we come to the table, is it just something that we go through the motions on? Or do we rightly, as Paul suggests in Corinthians, do we examine and discern the body? Do we think to ourselves, am I in right relationship with my brothers and sisters? Have I done what I can do in my control to reconcile? Have I been generous? Do I know what the needs are of my brothers and sisters? And have I been generous? Have I discerned the body before I take of the body and blood of Jesus? You see, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, If you're going to offer a gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, you should stop what you're doing. You should leave it there. You should go be reconciled and then come back. God's not interested in the immediacy of the gift. He'd rather us be reconciled first and then come back and finish it up, right? He cares about us being reconciled to one another. If we want to respond in a way that God has called us to in being one body, we will do so in a way that reconciles and restores relationships. We will do so in a way that promotes unity. I love what it says here in Romans. A section with the uninspired heading, Marks of a True Christian. It says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. You can hear the language there from Deuteronomy. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, you can see the parallels there. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, a right response to God's goodness should lead to unity. There's just no other option. We're called to love one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to be generous to one another and to seek out opportunities to welcome those outside our community and show them the same love and generosity. And so a right response to God's goodness promotes unity within our body. And the last point I want to make is this. A right response to God's goodness promotes righteousness and justice in our community. A right response to God's goodness promotes righteousness and justice in our community. I want to jump back to Deuteronomy 26 here. Verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, 
so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, the Israelites knew they could only truly make that confession of obedience that we see there in verses 13 and 14 if they had already taken care of the vulnerable in their community. They could only say, I have obeyed you, Lord. I have kept your commandments if the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the Levite were taken care of. They couldn't say that truthfully if they hadn't already done that. And so this sounds an awful lot like a social justice gospel, doesn't it? And my response to you is, yes, it is. But it's not just that. It's a holistic gospel. It's an economic justice gospel. Everyone has enough provision to live. It's a relational justice gospel. Everyone has a chance to be known and to be part of the community. It's a spiritual justice gospel. Everyone has the opportunity to know the mercy of God, which saves us, saves us from the consequences we deserve. You see, the heart of the gospel, the good news of the entire narrative of Scripture is not only or just not as simple as my sins can be forgiven and I can go to heaven. The heart of the gospel, the picture painted throughout the narrative of Scripture, is of a righteous and just God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, a king ruling a kingdom of people who chooses partners to be his ministers of justice and righteousness on earth. And through the death and shed blood of his only son, Jesus, on the cross, and Christ's subsequent resurrection and defeat of death, our King Yahweh brought and continues to bring justice on behalf of his people. And he is working to restore all of creation to himself. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your king, if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, hmm, that's, that's a little bit different than what I've heard. If you want to know more about what it means to be part of the kingdom of light, we want to talk to you. We want to point you in the direction for the answers to the questions that you have. So please come talk with one of us after the service. So part of walking in the light is having personal relationship and forgiveness. That is part of it. But it's not just that. It's also God restoring and establishing a kingdom, a community of people which are set aside in holy service to himself. Let's pick up Deuteronomy back in 26, 16 through 19. It says this, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. 
And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he has promised. The king, Yahweh, even though he is under no obligation to do so, reiterates his love and his commitment to his people. This language here shows us his affection for his people. He's not some angry God just waiting to smite us for doing that. He loves us. He loves his people. You can see it in how he speaks about them. It's not just provision he's giving them. It's fame and honor and glory because they are his people and because he is good. I love what Peter writes in 1 Peter. It says this, 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 and 2, and then I'll jump ahead. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter's speaking to Jesus' followers, and he says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, that you can show God's righteousness and justice, proclaiming how excellent it is to be part of a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you would receive mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it, is, uh, whether it be the emperor as supreme. We are God's chosen people, God's chosen treasured possession. And again, you can hear there the echo of Deuteronomy 26. A people for God's treasured possession. And we are already partakers of God's mercy through Christ. And as such, Peter encourages us, abstain from passions of the flesh. In other words, hold your time, talents, treasures, and relationships with an open hand. Don't let any of those things take the place of Christ as the object of your worship. And make sure your conduct among non-believers is honorable, letting them see your good deeds. Let it be obvious that you're a minister of righteousness and justice in the name of bringing God glory. It's very telling how the structure of the tithe offering is set up in the Old Testament. There is a confession that is directly tied then to the action of the generosity of the tither, the person who's bringing the tithe, to his community, to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The whole offering is set up on the premise that because God has been faithful to me, I will be faithful to my community. The action and the words are directly tied together. And James frames it this way. I'm just going to read this to you. James 2, 14, 18. 14 through 18. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for that body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There is no separating, dear church, a true hope in Jesus and faith in Jesus without generous action to back it up. Now this idea of what those works might be looks a little more concrete when we first consider the context of our first fruits. Those time, that time, our talents, our treasures, and our relationships. Back to Corinthians, Paul says this to the church there. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by the letter by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. I love what Paul tells the Corinthians to do there. He tells them on the first day of every week, set something aside so that when Paul comes, he doesn't need to make a big deal out of it. It should already be there for him. And it's a provision. What Paul's asking for is provision for their brothers and sisters in the church at Jerusalem who are experiencing a huge drought, a famine, and they're literally dying of starvation. And so Paul's asking the other churches to support them. There's a need to be intentional and to make a plan to be generous. He says, set something aside. Be intentional about it. Store it up. Save it. Don't spend it. Save it for the Lord's use. Just like the Israelites were to take out a portion every year for three years so that they could then offer it to their community. They were intentional about it. They set things aside to be generous. And so we also need to be intentional about setting aside a portion of our time, our talents, treasures, and relationships for the Lord's use. So I want to finish this story that I started earlier about waiting for the rest of my harvest to come in. I know it sounds terrible, like I mailed a check to Jim and Tammy Faye Baker or something, but that's not what I'm talking about. I was sitting at my computer and I was looking at, at the budget, Sarah and I's annual budget, and I was realizing that we were behind in giving what we said we were going to give. And I was, again, miffed that this deposit hadn't come in. And in the middle of just kind of moping around about it, uh, I was instantly convicted because I checked my email and there was a request from our brother Marcel to help fund the annual pastor's conference and for a couple more church roofs in Burkina Faso. And so while I was waiting for my harvest to come in, our brother, Marcel, is literally laboring in the field. Literally and figuratively, laboring in the field. He's out there planting churches in the bush, equipping pastors on the front lines of religious persecution. And the Lord was saying to me through this text as I was studying, you need to set something aside each week 
and store it up so that when Marcel asks, there won't be a need to take up a collection. So that when a family in your church needs help with groceries, you don't need to take up a collection. So that when a single mom comes in looking for diapers and clothes for their children, we don't need to take up a collection. We've already made a plan to be generous. And I was convicted by that. Because there shouldn't be even a question about our generosity. Remember how the Lord framed it. It was a promise. When you come into the land, you need to do this. It wasn't a question of, well, we don't feel like it, Lord. We're waiting for our crops to grow. It was, no, you're going to do it. You're going to be generous. You're going to reflect my heart to the world. So there shouldn't even be a question about it. And I was convicted. If there's a need to be met in our community, we should, like it said in Hebrews, we should be trying to outdo one another in showing love and generosity. We don't literally need to come to blows, but there should be an element of fighting to have the honor of being generous and serving one another. We should be the first people in our community to use our resources to bring righteousness and justice. Because the world is full of heartbreaking injustices. I didn't plan it this way, but we got to hear earlier from Dan, from Kyle, about the brokenness in the world. And what a wonderful example of being intentional with our time to be generous. I appreciate the model that those brothers and sisters in our church set by giving up a week of their summer to spend with these rough kids, ministering to them, showing them true love, and spending their times and their talents with them. And you see, brothers and sisters, when we give generously of our time, talents, and treasures and relationships, we partner with God in bringing justice and righteousness to the world. The generosity of this church is partnering with the work God is already doing to bring grace to those pastors in Burkina. It's allowing people who haven't heard the good news of the gospel to sit comfortably in a, in a covered church building and to hear that they can be part of the kingdom of light for the very first time. Dear church, you are incredibly generous. I know that you are. Because the elders were able to just send a check to Marcel. We've made it a plan to be generous. But at the same time, I want you to hear me correctly. We haven't arrived in terms of generosity. I don't want us to think that just because we've sent one check over or because we've roofed X amount of churches and given out X amount of resources and benevolence, that we can stop being generous and stop being intentional. I wonder what it would look like this morning if when we came to the table of communion, we truly took time to make sure that we are taking the bread and the cup in a way that honors Christ in a manner worthy of His blood and body by being reconciled to each other and by being generous. And I wonder what it would look like if instead of just dropping our tithe in the box, if we took a second and we made a confession similarly to the confession we find in Deuteronomy. If we took a moment in our hearts and we said, Lord, I've set aside 
a portion of my finances and all the things you've given to me. And I've used it to support your work in the church and to promote justice among the vulnerable. My heart is clean before you, Lord. I have done my best to follow you and to live reconciled to my neighbors. Now, Lord, look down from heaven and be pleased with us and continue to bless us so that we can continue to be ministers of your grace. I wonder if we did that, how our hearts would be moved to respond in righteousness and justice. You see, brothers and sisters, how we spend our money and how we treat our neighbors is a justice issue that speaks to the rest of the world that we belong to God and that we are his people. A right response to God's goodness shows that our only hope is in Jesus. It promotes unity in the body and it promotes righteousness and justice in our community. Mission Fellowship, may we be a body marked by a response to God's goodness. May we be a people set apart for holy service in the way that we use our time, our talents, our treasures, and our relationships. And may we continue to be ministers of God's justice and righteousness in a world full of brokenness.